Hello everybody, and this is Casey Brennan, the Traveling Historian. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to talk a little bit about history. Now, it's probably that subject that if you ever told anyone you enjoyed, you probably got the response, oh, I don't like history, and you probably said, that's amazing, thanks for telling me that. But what I want to do is turn history from something that's boring and not exciting to anyone who thinks history is just numbers, names, dates, etc., etc., facts, 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 into something fun and enjoyable. And that's what we're going to try and do. Now, our first topic for our podcast series is going to be Alexander the Great, the young and the bold. Now, according to sources, we have Alexander being born in about 356 BC to the royal family of the kingdom of Macedon. And for those of us who don't know, Macedon occupies a region that it basically does today in what would be northern Greece or a little bit higher. Uh, He was the son of Philip II of Macedon who was in the process of growing the kingdom by fighting against rival Greek kingdoms and reforming the army. At this time, Macedon is not really considered to be a Greek state. The Greeks that are in the lower Greek states, um, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, Thessaly, all of them, they consider Macedon to be, you know, the hillbillies of Greece. They don't consider them to be true, true Greeks, true, you know, civilized people, Uh, They think of them as the backwoods nobodies. And so this kind of allows Philip to operate with a little bit of independence because the other Greek states don't really see them as a legitimate threat to them. They have much bigger concerns, but Philip uses that to his advantage. It's at this time that we also have the Achaemenid Empire, most commonly known as the Persian Empire, which is near the height of its power, but it had been defeated at this point in two wars against the Greek city-states already. Um, Think of Salamis, think of Thermopylae, those conflicts, essentially. Now, Alexander's mother is Olympia. She is not Macedonian. She is from another Greek kingdom, as Ephraim. This occupies the modern-day region of Albania, which is just to the north of Greece. She marries Philip of Macedon, so Alexander is only half Macedonian, and this will come into play later. But Olympia raises him, um, along with the wife of one of his future generals, one of Philip's friends, and he's educated in his early years by Leonidas, who is a friend and relative of his mother's, not the Leonidas from 300 or the, the Spartans in Thermopylae, completely different guy. Now, at age 10, he's able to take a horse um, that was almost given away by his father and the story for this is actually quite touching some random horse salesman uh comes to philip and says here i have this horse for you and philip accepts it buys it but the problem is that this horse can't be broken no one's really able to figure out why and philip just thinks it's a bad horse you can ask any people you know in your life that have horses that that can be a problem um especially if your intent is to ride it and for someone of great nobility like Philip, then that's important, being able to ride a powerful steed. But what Alexander at age 10 is able to realize, at least according to the stories, is that the horse is actually afraid of its own shadow. And so it gets startled and spooked, and so it won't allow anyone near it during the day. So what Alexander does is he goes into the paddock, into the the stables at night, and gradually works with this horse. What he does is eventually he's able to succeed in breaking the horse. He actually, you know, is able to do what no one else did. And his father tearfully embraces him and says, Alexander, Macedon is too small for you. And it's this really kind of touching moment between Alexander and Philip, which we won't see really continue later on, unfortunately. 
But Alexander now has this steed. This steed's name is Bucephalus. Alexander does this. He's already showing signs of being gifted, uh, but he's still very young. At age 13, we have the philosopher Aristotle. Yes, that Aristotle that we've probably heard about in class before or just in the world or seen all those quotes on Google. But Aristotle is chosen to be Alexander's tutor, his personal tutor. Now, there have been a bunch of different philosophers and educators that Philip had been going around looking for. Think about any high-class tutor, you know, that you look for either for your child or that your parents looked for you. There are plenty of options, but you have to pick the right one for them. And there are plenty of people who are making counter offers to be employed by a king, but ultimately he settles on Aristotle because of his renown. Now, there's a deal, though, because Aristotle, being the guy he is, isn't going to just go, okay, sure, I would love to do that. He makes a deal with Philip. And that deal is that Philip agrees to rebuild Aristotle's hometown, which had been destroyed by Philip himself in some of these conflicts that had happened previously, and free the residents from slavery in order to repopulate the town. So you have to imagine that that meeting was a little bit tense, you know, saying, hey, guy whose town I burned down, would you like to tutor my son? And the guy saying, yes, of course I would love to, on the condition that you undo all the bad things you did to me. But... They come to that agreement, and Aristotle, one of the greatest minds in history, is now tutoring Alexander. He is joined in this school by other noble sons, many of whom would become close friends and generals, um, who become his original companions. And we'll get back to the companions in a little bit, but these are people that will accompany Alexander throughout his life. So we fast forward a few years, and Alexander turns 16, his tutelage under Aristotle ends, and he's placed as regent and heir apparent to Macedon while Philip goes away on campaign against Byzantium, which will then later become Constantinople, which will then become Istanbul in modern-day Turkey. This is a big step, and it sounds... Alexander is very young (laughs) at this time, and it's, you know, think about a 16-year-old and thinking about them ruling a kingdom in of themselves while their parents are away. And for some of us, that might be scary to leave a 16-year-old at home alone while their parents go away for the weekend. So imagine being placed in command of an entire kingdom for while your father is away on campaign against people. One of the big things that Philip is bringing with him on this campaign is the new phalanx. And the phalanx is a Greek formation that's used widely across Greece and then areas nearby which essentially is a giant compact cube formation of soldiers with long spears and big shields. Now, the way that Greek warfare worked at the time is these two rows of phalanx would just push against one another and whoever pushed harder won. So what Philip does is he expands the size of the phalanx. Each of these individual formations are consisting of 256 soldiers, which is a lot. And each of those spears can be upwards of 20 feet long, which, get a tape measure, look it up, it is insane how long that spear is. Now, the front few ranks would have their spears downward in a forward-facing position, while the other ones gradually, as they went farther back, would have their spears tilted upward. One, just that way it was easier to carry them, but also it provided some form of protection from arrows and other light, you know, javelins that are coming into the formation. So Philip has this new tool that he's going to play around with in the area of modern-day Turkey and Byzantium. It's during this time that Alexander proves himself as a capable leader 
when a group of Thracians revolted, and he quickly puts an end to that revolt and actually resettles the land entirely with Greek settlers. Now, this might sound cruel, but what Alexander's trying to do is place a permanent hold on this territory. He's making a lesson to the Thracians, who would say, we don't want any more Macedonian rule. He's saying, okay, if you decide that, your price is this. So he does this to resounding effect. While this is happening, there's a dispute that occurs farther south in what we think of as traditionally mainland Greece. It's a dispute between the city of Amphissa and the sacred city of Delphi, which if you've ever seen the 300 movie, this is where Leonidas goes to consult the Oracle, which was a sacred site in Greece in real life, where different leaders would go to see and get advice from these oracles. So this site is very important to Macedon as well, despite what the Greeks in the lower south think. The Macedonians still care about this city. But these two cities, Amphissa and Delphi, get into an argument. They get into a spite over farming lands, which Amphissa is taking from Delphi. Now, what this does is get Philip a pretext to intervene in southern Greece. And this is crucially important because he really didn't have a justification to get involved in southern Greek affairs. This presents him a wonderful opportunity. And Alexander is the first to make a move because his father, again, at this time is still away you know, miles to the east, away from the territory. So Alexander is the first to depart with an army. Philip quickly leaves the campaign and will meet his son in 338 BC. Now, what they do is they join their forces together and they campaign together against an alliance of city-states led by our old friends Athens. They fought in several engagements, but at the Battle of uh, Tronia, the Macedonians decisively defeated both Thebes and Athens. To be a little more specific about this, what happens is this giant Macedonian phalanx formation, it actually is able to smash through the Athenians who just simply break and run, leaving the poor uh, Thebans behind, and the Thebans are quickly rounded up and either killed or captured. Following this, there's really no resistance against the Macedonians, and so they are really able to march throughout the Peloponnese, and they receive rather warm welcomes from most of the states with the exception of Sparta. When they arrive at Sparta and they say, hello, can we come in? A little bit less polite than that, but the Spartans say, no, 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 you are not coming in here. We don't really recognize you. And rather than pick a fight with it, Philip says, okay, we will respect your sovereignty. And this is something that's kind of different between Philip and Alexander. We'll see that Philip much rather prefers diplomacy as an option than simply battering his way through any problem. So what Philip does is after this victory tour, he founds the Hellenic Alliance, um, which is an alliance of city-states with Philip as its head, as hegemon. And he announces at this time that he intends to attack Persia. And Persia is one of the largest empires in the world at this time. Around this time, the Persian Empire controls around 30 to 40% of the world population. So this is no mean, you know, threat. This is a, a, a hunter saying, I'm going to take down you know, a mammoth. This is someone saying they're going to do this single-handedly. And it's a tall order. But Philip feels confident with his newfound authority that he can do this. Now, at this point, there's a bit of a spat between Alexander and his father. While most of the time within Greek society, and mostly Macedonian society as well, they practice monogamy. However, Philip doesn't follow that normal protocol for relationships. What he does is he employs a polyamory relationship he will marry multiple wives and forms of alliance and for love 
what have you. Now, Philip marries again, right around this time, but to a Macedonian woman. That sounds innocuous at first, because again, Alexander is 16, 17 at this time. So one might think, well, what threat is that to him? However, looking at lineage-wise, because if we go back and remember, Alexander is not fully Macedonian. He is only half Macedonian, thanks to his mother. Any son that would be born to this new wife would automatically, therefore, be the legitimate successor being fully Macedonian. There's no immediate son that pops up to garner this, but the father of this new bride openly brags about it at celebrations, commemorating the marriage, saying that his daughter will give birth to the future king of Macedon. And so Alexander and his mother worry that this poses a threat to Alexander's life. So Alexander briefly flees into exile in Ephesus when it kind of looks that his position is not only as heir is in jeopardy, but his life. There's a friend that comes into play that is able to successfully mediate this disagreement between him and his father. So Alexander's only gone for a few months. However, it, this should show you that the relationship is not exactly the most fruitful thing of, of relationships. But Alexander returns home, and we are going to see that Alexander is very much... He's a mama's boy, and his mother is a great influence on him. In the summer of 336, so only two years after, you know, Philip is able to take out the Greek city-states in kind of one fell swoop, while Philip is attending a wedding uh, for his daughter to the king of Ephesus, he is actually assassinated by one of his bodyguards in public, and as this, the assassin runs away, he is killed by other bodyguards of Philip. And Alexander is proclaimed king of Macedon on the spot at the age of 20. The, <laughs> the obvious thing is that there's probably foul play at, in play at this point. Do we have any hard evidence of it? No, because the only person that would potentially confess anything is dead. The assassin is murdered on the spot, which, you know, is an instinctual reaction for any bodyguards, but is also a very convenient a method of preventing any witnesses from saying anything. And given the, the recent threat that Alexander and his mother perceived to his life and to his claim on the throne, it makes Alexander and his mother a prime duo candidate for setting up this murder. Because it certainly works out well for Alexander. <laughs> so he is proclaimed king in 336 at the age of 20. So this guy is only 20 years old, and he is now the king of Macedon. And his first act... Uh, which should not be a super surprise to anyone, he follows up by the elimination of all of his potential rivals to his claim on the throne. Uh, he kills a couple of his cousins, several generals that had been loyal to his father, while his mother, without Alexander's permission, took the opportunity to murder, murder another one of Philip's wives and her son. And Alexander is quite unhappy with this when he finds out, but nevertheless, he lets her live and continue. The only one that is spared um, in his close familiar relations is Alexander's half-brother, Philip Aridius. Due to a mental disability that was most likely the result of poisoning by Alexander's mother, Olympia. So Alexander pities him and is merciful to him and lets him live. But this isn't the last we're going to hear of him, so keep that name in the back of your mind, Philip Aridius. The news of Philip's death causes several states to rebel against Macedonian rule. Because most of the time, when you have you know, the sudden death of a leader, that is the sign of instability. So these states seek the opportunity to 
rise up and revolt and try and gain their independence. We have the the original gang leaders, uh, Thebes and Athens, rising up, along with Thessaly and some Thracian tribes that rise up and try to challenge this new Macedonian king. While his advisors will urge for diplomacy, which would have been the case with his father, Alexander chooses to muster a force and march south. The Greeks, still kind of freshly beaten off their previous losses in the last war, don't put up much of a resistance against Alexander and are quickly subdued by him. In the spring of 335 BC, Alexander marches north into Thrace and Illyria and quells the revolts there. And in 334, we will see that Antipater, who is one of Alexander's generals, is made regent of Greece by Alexander. The reason for this is because Alexander, like his father, wants to invade Persia. And again, this is going to come back to Alexander's upbringing. His mother had raised him with this very unhealthy attitude that Alexander was destined to be more than anyone, that he was destined to achieve this great purpose, this great destiny, and that the world was too small for him. So she sets up this very arrogant complex within him. And Alexander, as a young man, sees his father undergo campaigns, suffering wounds and, you know, marching on through them. And this fuels his competitiveness. And he is known to have complained that his father would not leave anything for him to do once he was old enough. Not only do we get a little bit of motivation to murder Philip, but also an idea of what makes Alexander do this whole enterprise. So what Alexander does is he sets off for an invasion of Persia in 334 BC, crossing the Hellespont, which is a narrow uh, crossing uh, between Europe and Asia. And he brings with him around 48,000 soldiers, over 6,000 cavalrymen, and a fleet of around 120 ships with a crew complement of upwards of 40,000. So Alexander is fully intending on doing this, and he brings around a sizable force with him. And when they made the crossing, Alexander, in a bite of modesty, which will become his character, um, he throws a spear into the dirt of Asia and declares that he accepts Asia as a gift from the gods, and he accepts it willingly from them. The first engagement of that conflict was waged on the banks of the Granicus River, which is right after his crossing, essentially, which is the first Persian response to this invading Macedonian army. And Alexander personally leads his companion cavalry into battle. Now, the companions are his personal bodyguard unit, which are composed of those noble sons that he tutored with and he learned with as a young boy. And he personally leads the charge into battle against the Persians. Thanks to his creativity and his bravado, Alexander is able to win a decisive victory against the Persians. And he secures the surrender of the provincial capital of Sardis, which is in western uh, Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. He then proceeds to march down the coast, and he's taking cities left and right. This region is heavily Greek, which had actually previously rebelled against Persia, mostly welcomes Alexander, who in turn gives most of them autonomy, still under his rule, but he says, okay, as long as you still obey me, we're, we're good. You can do your own thing. The fight for Helicarnassus, um, which is toward the south, is the first real siege of the campaign, and once again sees Alexander emerge victorious in this fight. Um, he proceeds to move along the coast, removing ports for the Persian navy. Now, despite Alexander having around 120 ships at his disposal, is really nothing compared to 
the Persian Navy. Macedon itself is a land power. It is not a naval power. And Alexander knows this. So he's going to play to his strengths. And you can have the strongest fighter in the world, but if you starve him, they will be as weak as any other person. And this is what Alexander does with the Persian fleet. He says the Persian fleet can be as strong as possible, but if they have nowhere to refuel, essentially, and come back to port, then they are nothing. So Alexander goes forward with this strategy, taking city after city, removing bases for the Persian navy. And at this point, he feels pretty secure, and so he marches further inland into Anatolia. Now, this is where we arrive at the city of Godium, which is home to the famous Gordian Knot. And this is one of my favorite stories from Alexander, because when I tell this story to people who aren't familiar with it, you get a mixture of responses, and you'll see why. Gordium is home to the famous Gordian Knot, which, by prophecy, is said that if it is untied, it was said to foretell the coming of the king of Asia. You might be thinking of some small knot. We're talking about a giant knot, like bigger than a basketball, and you can't see the ends of it. In this encounter, Alexander walks up to the Gordian knot. He examines it, sees that he can't see the ends of the rope, and while most people either would have given up, tried to pry at it, some other method, Alexander, being either creative or a cheater, depending on the point of view that you want to go with, he argues that it does not matter the method in which the knot was untied. And so what he does is he pulls out his sword and slashes his way into the knot to find the ends of the rope and then proceeds to untie what's left of the knot. Again, depending on your point of view, this is either Alexander thinking creatively and outside of the box, or it's him being a sour sport and cheating to get his way and using brunt force. And whether or not this story is 100% true is debated. But what we can do is use it to see again another example of how Alexander and his father are different. Philip, you know, we don't obviously know what would have happened, but Philip was more careful, more planning-oriented, whereas Alexander comes off as more, if I can beat it with force, then that's the way it's done. And the Gordian Knot is the perfect example of that comparison. But regardless of what you think, Alexander certainly saw it the way he wanted to, and sees this as just another affirmation that he will be the king of Asia. So he marches further into Asia, into Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and he, after he has some initial victories in the spring of 333 BC, Alexander passes through Taurus into the Cilicia region, which is towards southern Turkey, leading into where we think of Syria, Lebanon, this area, but he's still to the north. It's during this period that Alexander falls ill, and he actually delays the campaign for some time. He doesn't choose to delegate the campaign to another general while he gets better. Alexander is very much someone who doesn't want any of this glory stolen from him. And if that means delaying the whole campaign, then so be it. Nothing really comes of this. Um, the Persians don't mount a successful counterattack. You know, they don't retreat. They just kind of sit put. And once he is well again, they begin to march into Syria. This point, the Persian king Darius III personally pursues Alexander with his army, which is much, much larger than Alexander's. And he's actually able to kind of outmaneuver Alexander with this larger army, but they are just trying to avoid each other at this point. But when they finally do come to a clash, they fight at the Battle of Issus, in which, again, Alexander personally leads the assault, and this actually nearly leads to the capture of Darius. Now, what happens is that it's very cinematic, almost, and you'll see that many moments in Alexander's life are fit for the movies. What Alexander does is his cavalry breaks through the Persian lines and is actually making a beeline straight for Darius and his chariot. And this is probably the most prolific moment that we probably actually know of Alexander 
um, the image that we commonly associate with Alexander is from a mosaic, which is actually discovered in Pompeii, which actually depicts this moment at the Battle of Issus. But it's at this point that Alexander receives information that one of his, his lines is breaking. And he has the choice at this moment to either continue on and ca- try and capture Darius or risk seeing his army be defeated in battle and choose to go help them. And it's a, it's a hard moment for Alexander, but he ultimately decides to turn around and help his army. This allows Darius to escape his grasp, and Alexander turns back, helps his army defeat the Persian army, which collapses in turn. And in the chaos, Darius's wife, his two daughters, his mother, and the mobile treasury are captured by the Macedonians. So this is quite, quite the victory for Alexander. Not only has the Persian leader been defeated, but significant members of his family and treasury are captured. Now, Alexander is still frustrated at this point because the the biggest opportunity he had to end the war in one fell swoop is lost to him. But it's from this point on that Alexander is able to march along the coast freely, that he accepts the surrenders of most of the settlements. And this is at this point, we're talking about, you know, modern day Lebanon and Israel and Palestine, where he is able to march south. The only cities that really resist him are Tyre or Tyre and Gaza. Now Gaza will fall after a long siege, but Tyre, again, one of my favorite stories of Alexander is that Tyre is a island city. It is off the coast and rather than simply bypass it and move on, Alexander sees this as a challenge to him. And to be fair, the the people of Tyre challenge him essentially and say that we're not surrendering to you. You'll have to come and get us. And now while most people would just try to use his fleet, cut the Tyrans off, starve them out, Alexander doesn't have time for that. So what he does is he instructs his engineers to build a bridge, essentially, to make a roadway out to the city. And that sounds insane, but Alexander does it. He has his engineers, over time, build a land bridge out to the city where he's able to successfully take it. And as a punishment for their resistance, Tyre and Gaza are put to the sword and all men of military age are executed by the Macedonians. Now, at this point, Alexander is clear to enter Egypt. And in late 332 BC, he is welcomed as a liberator. And it's important to remember at this time, the Egyptian area that we think of it as today isn't really what it is. At this time, you have a mix of different people that are inhabiting Egypt. And a lot of them would have seen the Persians as just another conqueror that were occupying them. And so seeing the Greeks come in, they welcome them as liberators. Alexander makes this journey to the oasis of Siwa, where he is proclaimed to be the son of the god Amun. And this doesn't really go to help Alexander's ego any, you know, any bit. And he refers to himself as such from this point on. So Alexander has built himself a god complex, and we're going to see this kind of come into play later on. But again, this doesn't exactly go well to humbling this new king. It's during his stay in Egypt that he would found the city of Alexandria, which still still exists to this day, and becomes a major point of economic power and physical power later on in the ancient world. Now, fresh from his victories and his new godlike status, Alexander leaves Egypt in 331 BC. You have to imagine that this guy is riding high. He is extremely ecstatic. He believes that the world is going to fall under his feet. And for the most part, there's nothing that's showing him he's wrong. 
Darius, um, who is at this point recouped um, himself, and he kind of gathers another army for himself, and he makes another attempt to stop Alexander um, at Gogamela, which is in modern-day northern Iraq. And this is another climactic set-piece battle where the Persians outnumber the Macedonians, but Alexander, thanks to his own creativity and military genius, is able to decisively defeat the Persians yet again at Gogamela. We'll see that this basically breaks Persia. This allows Alexander to freely march south and capture Babylon and Susa, which are both capitals of the Persian Empire, along with their treasuries. And this is a moment of severe morale loss and territorial loss for Persia. Darius, as a result, his whole army is broken and he flees. There is no significant resistance that will face Alexander again after the Battle of Gogamela. There is token resistance against Alexander, who would attempt to position themselves between Alexander and the ceremonial capital of Persepolis, but Alexander is able to outmaneuver them, and he is able to capture the city. During their seven-month stay in the city, he allows his troops to openly loot the city, and it is burned to the ground, essentially. It's said that Alexander immediately regrets this decision that he allowed this much looting to occur in such a beautiful city to be destroyed. And you can look up examples of the gates of Babylon just as an example of just how beautiful these cities that we're talking are. These gates that are these pristine blue meant to look like lapis lazuli with this gold and animals over the gates. These are beautiful cities and they are being destroyed by Alexander. And again, to his credit, he seems to feel a little bit bad about it. If so, more for the architecture rather than the poor people that are living in the cities. But after this seven-month period in the city, Alexander continues to pursue Darius across Persia. Because as long as Darius lives, Alexander really can't claim victory. Or at least in his own mind, he can't. Even though Darius at this point has no power beyond himself. There are forces that are no longer loyal to him. They are breaking or surrendering to Alexander. And he's actually captured and murdered by one of his former satraps, his governors, who is actually one of his cousins um, named Bessus, who proclaims himself Darius's successor and flees in order to wage a guerrilla war against Alexander. He doesn't actually have a legitimate claim onto the throne. Now, what Bessus claims is that on his deathbed, you know, while he's murdering him, uh, Darius proclaims Bessus to be his successor. This is most likely not true at all, but regardless, Alexander sees this as a very annoying moment, a very aggravating moment, because... He sees Bessus as another rival claimant to the throne, a usurper, essentially, to his title. You can argue that because Bessus is still this Persian resistance, that Persia doesn't really fall until later. Traditionally, though, historians will mark Darius's death as the fall of the Achaemenid Empire. This is when Persia essentially ceases to exist. But Alexander pursues Bessus in campaigns in Asia. He names a number of cities after himself, um, including the modern capital city of Kandahar in Afghanistan, which at the po- that point in time was known as Alexandria, which again should point to us telling us that Alexander is not exactly a modest person in general, that if he's going around naming cities after himself, he has a very full head. It's at this point that we have several plots against Alexander also manifesting as he chooses to adopt more Persian customs. And this is something that really angers his soldiers and his fellow officers. They see themselves as going to Persia to conquer them. And as they watch Alexander adopt more of their customs, their dress, he will employ a harem, which is a 
large group of women and other customs that are common among Persian nobility, they kind of question and say, well, wait, what are we doing here? If we weren't, we're not here to become them. We are here to conquer them. So there's a couple of plots that manifest against Alexander trying to kill him, but none of them are successful. On the flip side of the coin, back in Greece, everything is hunky-dory. Greece is enjoying relative peace at this time and prosperity as Alexander is sending Luke home. So they're doing quite fine while Alexander is campaigning away in Asia. After campaigning against several rebels, um, including Bessus, Alexander begins to look to India, which is this next big hurdle of a state. While Persia was a singular unified state, India is not at this point. There are several different rival kingdoms and dynasties that are in place. Alexander invites a number of chieftains who would have served Persia along the border of India and Persia, um, located in modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan, to join him and swear fealty. While most of these neighboring kingdoms do submit, there were a number of hill tribes that refused to submit to Alexander. And so it's in the winter of 327 and 326 BC that Alexander campaigns against these tribes, and he's actually wounded twice, once in his shoulder and once in his ankle. These aren't anything super serious, but he's wounded, and it shows the danger of him leading personally from the front. While it's quite courageous and noble and cinematic, it's not exactly safe for the leader of your entire kingdom and your army to be charging the forefront of the battle. Now, he sets his sights on the next kingdom that poses a threat to his borders. Alexander makes a march further into India. After crossing the Indus River, Alexander engages with King Porus, who is one of these powerful kings in India, in a hard-fought battle at the Battle of the Hydaspes, which again is another statement to Alexander's brilliance that there's him and Porus are sitting on opposite ends of the river. So Alexander can't cross without Porus simply waiting there and shooting his troops as they try to cross. So they keep marching back and forth, just mirroring one another on the opposite side. So what Alexander does is he starts organizing night marches to essentially replicate this pattern during a day. They do it for nights and nights and nights on end. And essentially Porus gets tired of it and says, I mean, if they're not going anywhere, then we're not going to do this again. Now, this is exactly what Alexander was waiting for. Once the the Indians stop following his troops at night, that's when Alexander makes his crossing. And so when Porus wakes up the next morning, he sees that part of the Macedonian army is now on his side of the river, just like he didn't want to happen. So they fight this extremely hard-fought battle. And you can argue that any battle is hard-fought, but this one especially so. We are seeing large numbers of war elephants... Soldiers that the Greeks aren't and the Macedonians aren't accustomed to fighting, and they deal a number to each other. Porus is able to survive the battle and is actually captured by Alexander. But Alexander is incredibly impressed by his leadership, and Alexander chooses to spare his life and make him a satrap, and make him a governor of the area, and continue to rule over his native lands as a means of reliably controlling the territory. Because Alexander knows that he can't personally lead this territory when it's so far away from Macedon and any other territory in this empire. And it's much easier for him to have a local ally administer the territory for him than him doing it himself. So he lets Porus live and makes him an ally. And it's soon after this battle that Alexander's horse, Bucephalus, who, remember, he's had all the way since he was 10, his horse dies, most likely due to old age. We don't know the exact age of Bucephalus, but historians estimate that he was about 30 when they die. And this causes Alexander to become greatly distressed. It's one of the things that I try to emphasize all the time, that these are people that, you know, we sometimes fail to connect with people in the past through no malicious action of our own, but 
these people lived thousands of years ago, and so it's hard to connect with their world and their life. But think about any time that you've lost a pet, that you've lost a family member. That's what Alexander's going through at this point, that he's lost a companion, a pet that he's had for most of his life at this point. So he becomes greatly upset by that, and that's something that affects him deeply. So this man is human, despite all the stuff that he's been able to achieve, you know, the casualties that have been sustained, his own upbringing, all of that. He is sad when his pet dies, and that's something that's very, very human. And out on the opposite side of the river of the Hadaspes, Alexander actually founds two cities, one named Nicaea, which means victory, and the other one, Bucephala, after his horse. So he named a city after his horse, and... Again, that should just tell us how much he loved that thing. That that was his companion. He wanted to leave a lasting mark to his pet that he loved. Despite all of that, you know, they've had a number of successes. Alexander has run a victory campaign throughout the known world, essentially, at this point. From Macedon all the way to Egypt, to Iran, to Afghanistan, to India. He's enjoyed nothing but success and prestige. But there's a fear among his troops about larger Indian kingdoms and the exhaustion from years of constant marching and warfare that, again, these are still people that are marching on foot all around, you know, these countries. Imagine, you know, you don't want to drive, you know, 10 minutes down to the store. Imagine marching with armor and equipment for hundreds of miles to fight in wars constantly. And after seeing this most recent battle with all these war elephants with this tenacious fighter and someone says, hey, we're going to keep fighting more of those, but they're going to be bigger and stronger than before. Okay, you can understand why these soldiers are kind of they're done and they actually mutiny against Alexander. They refuse to march further east at the Hadaspes River. They say no more. They say we are not going any farther. We are done. We want to go home. We want to see our families. We want to see our children. We're done. And Alexander initially tries to persuade his soldiers to continue. But one of his generals, Conus, um, he's actually able to convince Alexander to listen to his men. While you might be thinking at first, oh, this is actually something good for Alexander. He's actually listening to someone else and kind of ditching his own ego. It's perfect. I'm going to cut you short. Sorry. Alexander is very spiteful. (laughs) So what Alexander does is he marches south, conquers the remaining Indian kingdoms along the Indus River, which is mostly to just protect the flank, to protect protect the eastern part of his empire make it have a solid boundary he does this and he actually sustains another injury during this point Uh, upon reaching the southern coast of iran um, he sends some of his army by fleet along the persian gulf back to babylon in modern day iraq but he will personally lead the majority of his army through southern iran now for those of us who don't know southern iran is very very hot and there is a lot of desert in that territory Alexander knows this, and this route is much more hostile than any other route that Alexander could have chosen. And it's mostly seen as Alexander's way of punishing the men as a result of their mutiny. And because of this, there's a lot of his soldiers that will die due to the heat. So while Alexander agrees to their demands, he makes them suffer for it. And Alexander returns to Susa, which is one of these capitals, in 324 BC. Um, And he executes a number of satraps 
due to their mismanagement while he was away. Now, there's growing discontent in the Macedonian ranks toward Alexander's continued adoption of Persian customs prompted by different forms of Alexander's mental stability. And one could argue that simply Alexander was trying to accommodate the local customs. Others would argue that he was essentially losing himself. And one of the most, you know, egregious actions that Alexander takes is that he will actually have adopt the custom of prostration, that when entering his presence, he will have his soldiers prostrate themselves and his officers prostrate themselves to him. They will essentially get on the floor and act like they are at the feet of a god. Alexander had not done this previously, which is why it irks so many people. This is not a Macedonian custom. This is a Persian custom. They feel like they're being degraded and they feel like Alexander's lost it. Alexander will try and smooth over these relations. He'll send some of the older soldiers home, finally. And it's during this time period that Hephaestion, who is Alexander's closest friend and likely lover, um, which is something that we've glossed over because I wanted to wait until this moment, Alexander has one of his companions, Hephaestion, um, whose journey with him from the beginning of the campaign all the way until now. And there's no direct you know, evidence saying Alexander was gay or he was bisexual. At the time, bisexuality is something that is extremely common in Greece, in Macedon, especially among the noble classes. It's nothing controversial. Again, one of the things that you will see with history, unfortunately, is that there are a lot of historians that will try to essentially whitewash, you know, homosexuality and bisexuality out of history. And so frequently, it's, it's funny that you'll see uh, historians say, you know, they never, these, this man never married, you know, never had any children, but they only had the lifelong companion of their male friend. And there's plenty of people that will tell you that that raises a flag and that says, well, maybe, maybe there weren't, you know, straight. And this is a case for Alexander as well. Alexander, he hasn't, he has a couple of wives, one who he marries out of love and he will operate, he'll have a harem. However, he doesn't utilize the harem of women because as he says, he is in control of his bodily urges of the flesh. And there are people who make comments that he is among the best of friends of two women. And while visiting a memorial to Achilles, um, who is known to have had a male lover, Anatolia, Alexander puts a wreath down at the feet of Achilles. And Hephaestion puts a wreath down at the lover and fighter friend of Achilles, Petroclus. And Hephaestion is noted as saying that he is the beloved of Alexander as Petroclus was beloved by Achilles. Again, that should be very straightforward and clear on its meaning to us. But, you know, going forward, Alexander doesn't, his only child that he has, his only perfectly known child that he has, isn't born until after he dies. So he's not exactly making a name for himself in that department. And so what this points towards is that Alexander's most likely bisexual. That while, you know, he does, again, have a child with a woman, that most likely he'd also had a male lover in the form of Hephaestion. But again, as any human being can tell us, when someone that you love dies, it is deeply traumatic. The closer that person is to you, the more traumatic it is. So when Hephaestion dies, which we don't know how, either he dies of illness or poisoning, this devastates Alexander. And it's from this point on that we really see Alexander's character starting to change. He starts to go into a period of almost megalomania where he starts becoming more aggressive, a heavier drinker than he already has been up until this point, and he really starts getting out of hand. While he is in Susa, he starts beginning preparations for further military campaigns into Arabia and other places, but it's at this point where Alexander's life is going to be cut short. And it's in the summer of 323 BC 
that after celebrating with friends, Alexander grows grows weak. And after about a, a week of illness, he will die. And there are different accounts toward this final week of his life. There are several. There's an account that states Alexander slowly lost the ability to speak and will die after not being able to speak. There are others that say, you know, he just became so in pain that he couldn't speak because of the pain or that he was just in so much pain and then he dies. But the accounts are pretty consistent. That takes about a week for this to happen from him be starting this fit of illness to his death. And after this period, Alexander dies at the age of 32. So he has gone from being proclaimed the king of Asia and the king of Macedon at the age of 20. 12 years later, he is dying at the age of 32 in June of 323 BC. And to this day, it is unknown what the cause of death was. There are numerous theories about poisoning, which is something that was fairly common at the time, with suspects ranging from his brother to rival generals to just a modern illness um, that could have taken him. You know, malaria is one of those key suspects uh, because depending on the symptoms that you go by, it can be different. The results can be different, whether that be poisoning or illness. Alexander leaves no clear or legitimate heir. Now, again, there are different accounts of this one of the more popular ones states that alexander says on his deathbed when his generals ask him who shall lead your empire alexander simply says the strongest and then dies which as you can imagine is not exactly a clear answer for anyone but if you go by the one account that he couldn't even speak at his deathbed he couldn't have said it to begin with his bodyguard one of the the contemporary sources his bodyguard and leader of the companion cavalry, Perdiccas, emerges as a strong leader, as an heir, because Alexander gives him his signet ring, which, depending on his condition, could be seen as a way of saying, you are my legitimate heir, you're the one who I'm passing power to in the meantime. However, Perdiccas doesn't want it. <laughs> and this could be one of the biggest mistakes that happens with this line of succession. That if Alexander legitimately chose Perdiccas, who seems to have been a capable and by you know ancient standards, standards humble person, he argues that Alexander's son should be king. Because like I said before, Alexander's wife will give birth to a son shortly after Alexander dies. Being a newborn, an infant, he's not ready to become a king yet. And so Perdiccas argues that his son should be named king only when he was old enough and will be guided by himself and Alexander's half-brother, Philip Aridius, who was the one that was spared by Alexander early on in his rule. While this is all happening, Alexander's body is entombed and it is being led onto Macedon in a massive funeral procession. However, the body is stolen by one of his generals named Ptolemy and it's brought to Alexandria in Egypt. It might seem strange to steal the body for yourself, but in Macedonian nobility, burying the king was the sign of royal succession almost, that it was the duty of the next king to bury the previous king. So Ptolemy doing this is trying to essentially steal this custom to make himself more legitimate. Now, he takes the body and he entombs it in Alexandria, and the tomb stays there until late antiquity. And it's not until around 215 AD that the dimension of the tomb kind of becomes faint, that we don't that we lose track of it. For about 500 years, the, the tomb remains in Alexandria, doesn't move. Despite Perdiccas 
trying his best to maintain this vast empire. There's infighting that immediately develops between these rival generals who have no legitimate claim on the throne, but think that they are the best one to do so. Perdiccas, unfortunately, is assassinated in 321 BC, and what followed was nearly 40 years of war between these various generals until relatively stable regions emerge, during which Alexander's son, the only person who could legitimately claim to be an heir, and Philip Aridius are both murdered. So this leaves behind no legitimate heir to the throne, all these rival generals who will claim it for themselves. Alexander leaves behind about 20 cities bearing his name, new trade routes, a role model for future rulers, and socio-political structures that last to today. And Alexander's legacy will live on not only through the ancient world, but through the medieval era and later on as people will study this great ruler who punched above his weight and for such a young man was able to achieve so much. There's an account of Julius Caesar, you know, the person who become the first dictator, the not the first dictator, but a dictator of Rome and would become one of history's greatest legends, crying at the feet of a statue of Alexander, that Alexander was able to achieve so much for someone so young, and that Caesar had not accomplished anywhere close to that. And Alexander achieves this legacy that, again, punches above its weight, that he is able to spread Greek culture throughout the Middle East into Iran and Persia. If you look at statues from Buddhist statues of this period, you can see a definitive Greek influence on it. You can still see Greek ruins in modern-day Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. Again, one of the modern provincial capitals of Afghanistan, Kandahar, was founded by Alexander the Great, and that city is still up and running, of course, under a different name. But there's no denying that legacy that Alexander leaves, and we'll discuss it in future episodes, but Egypt and Anatolia and all these different regions that Alexander conquers are heavily made Greek, that they are influenced tremendously by Greek culture. And that's the greatest legacy of Alexander, probably, is not only that this almost legendary status that he creates for himself by conquering one of the world's largest empires in the span of less than 12 years, but he's able to do it in his 20s. And he makes himself one of the greatest rulers of all time, even though his reign doesn't last for very long. And that's probably the real lasting legacy of Alexander is that for someone so young, he was able to achieve something that magnificent. And that's where we're going to conclude this podcast. We're going to do this weekly. We're going to come back and discuss different topics. And I want to preface it by just saying that there's no pattern to this that I'm not going to go, you know, directly into the next ancient topic that we can bounce around because, you know, different topics are different people's liking. And I don't want to trudge through history and make it seem like this is a history class where I am just lecturing you constantly about everything that I want to present something that's exciting. And that means bouncing around, you know, talking about cool topics. So stay tuned. And next time we'll see what we're talking about on Traveling Historian. And I hope you have a wonderful day.